0: And welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about using your skills in different mediums. And we have a duo who is working film and television using their makeup skills, as well as being beauty entrepreneurs who run a beauty line, and hosts of a popular podcast slash radio show. I'm pleased to welcome Denise and Janice Tanel. And I'm really excited about this. I was actually on their show, I would say seven years ago, but we've kept in touch and I've been admiring their work from afar. So it's great to get the chance to sit down and talk to them about their work. And this is important because this is a time where there's more discussion about BIPOC people breaking through and being able to be on set, both doing hair and makeup. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Corinne. Can each of you give us a 30 second bio?
1: My name is Denise Tennell. I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, currently residing in Atlanta, Georgia, and I work as a makeup department head in film and television, and for the past almost 23 years. Also co-host of Beauty Talk with my sister, Janice, and also co-owner of a cosmetics line called Illusions Cosmetics. Hi, everybody. My name is Janice Tanell. I am a makeup artist of 23 years based in Atlanta, Georgia, right now, and I work primarily in film and television. Was the beauty industry a destination or a detour, Janice? The beauty industry was not a detour. I would say it was a destination, but it was not my plan. This career has been divinely planned. I was a tax accountant. I was happy to be one. I loved all things business. I always loved beauty, always loved makeup, that kind of thing. I was working, but I also was selling women's accessories and I wrote a business plan. And then that led me to get more interested in beauty because I wanted to own my own cosmetics line. And Denise, is your path similar? Would you say destination or detour? I'm going to say destination. It's exactly the same. I was an accountant and didn't have an issue with that for the longest time, and I didn't know anything else. I went to college, I got a degree, and I was happy with that. And then it's like, I just feel like over time, interest developed in certain things. It's like the longer you live, the more you experience, the more you know, the more you learn about. And that's kind of how it happened. You know, I just kind of fell into the whole idea of skincare and becoming an esthetician. And like Janice said, she wanted to have a cosmetics line, but I would always tell her, if you're going to have a cosmetics line you need to learn a little bit of something about the skin and so she would just tell me well i'll let you deal with the skin and i'll deal with the makeup <laughs> and so that's kind of how it happened and i just decided okay i'm going to learn more about skin and so i went to school and studied aesthetics and she took a makeup program And we just kind of came together on it because she was always constantly giving me makeup, buying me brushes, telling me, you need to read this makeup book. You need to read that makeup book. And one thing led to another. And it's like, one day I asked myself, can you see yourself not doing makeup? And the answer was no. So I knew then that eventually accounting was (laughs) going to go away. So in some ways, Janice had the interest
0: first in pulled your law.
1: Yes. It's funny because a lot of times we start off with similar things, but then it always winds up being the same thing. It's just like our majors in college. I wanted to study accounting. Hers was like, I think business or something. And then by the time we actually got to school, it was both accounting. We're just too much alike. Let's talk about your first job. Did you work in high school or what was your first job out of college? Yes. This is Janice. We did work in high school. They had like a job board. There was a job at this banquet hall that was actually not far from where we lived. And they were looking for more people. And so it was a couple of us in high school who lived in the same neighborhood. So it was a couple of us who found that job on the board and went in to apply. And we got the job. It was at a banquet hall. You're basically just, I don't want to say waitressing, but it was at a banquet hall, pretty much people would kind of like behind the buffet serving the food type of thing, and then clearing off tables. And then, of course, in Baltimore, there's a lot of crab feasts. So but that was when we really had fun, because then you got to serve the tables, the crabs. So you actually got to go to the tables, talk to the people, things like that. So that was always fun. What did you think you took away from that
0: job? What is something you learned there that you still do?
1: Oh, customer service, it's like how you speak to people, how you treat people, and you see that reciprocated, how you respond to people. If someone's upset about something, you learn not to get upset, to stay calm, deal with the situation. And then when people see that that's how you're dealing with the situation, then sometimes that brings them down, that calms them down, and therefore you can actually communicate with one another. I think that's one of the biggest things we've learned from that. And also just learning how to serve, and I'm not speaking about food, but just learning how to serve others and to meet their needs. And it was just something that our managers always got great feedback about us and how we interacted with the client. So I think it's just also about just learning how to serve. You both already talked about working as an accountant and tax accountant. What skill did you take away from that? One thing for me was mainly how to account For everything, pretty much. Like to this day, I still kind of use some basic accounting skills just with everything I do. Like, even though I don't do my own taxes anymore, because at one point I did for a long time, my record keeping skills are still there. Where some people, they like to scan their receipts or they may just use their credit card statements or something. Me, I'm so old school. I still save my receipts. I still like to see every little thing. I save receipts as if, oh my God, if this receipt is thrown in the trash, what's my backup? So I don't just depend on bank statements and credit card statements and things like that. I still like to account for every little thing to make sure I have backup for everything. Just my record keeping skills, I think is one thing that I've maintained. I think I take my tax accountant slash accountant skills with me everywhere I go, every job that I have, I'm always focused on the business aspect of everything. I don't care if it's an artsy type of job. I'm always the one thinking about the business side of all things. Like she said, the record keeping, the bookkeeping, I just always found that to be very important. And I think I take it everywhere that I go. And I would say part of why that's so important is because even in our careers now as makeup artists on film and television, being a department head, there are a lot of things that you have to do besides makeup, besides designing the book, things like that. There's an administrative side to the position. And part of it is dealing with petty cash and different purchases and stuff. And if you're using a company credit card and you don't have receipts to back up those purchases, guess what? You have to pay for that out of your pocket. So that's why I'm always going to have receipts for everything. So even though it's like people think, oh, the paper, the paper, but that's what studios are requiring. They want to see the paper receipts. They don't want to see a statement. They want to see the paper receipts to all of that stuff. And I think that's why I'm so good about keeping all of that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. I think these are really valid points. And it just goes to show that even if you're in a creative job, you cannot forget about the business part of it. That's right. You can never just like say, oh, I'm not a numbers person. I don't like math. Because at the bottom line, if you're creative, you still have to pay your taxes. You need to know where the money's coming from and where it's going. What do you remember about your first makeup jobs?
1: One of my first makeup jobs was I did a wedding for a woman that I went to church with. And I just did her makeup. I didn't do anybody else's makeup. It was a very small wedding. But the one thing that I remembered about it was I got paid $50 to do her makeup. And I remember when she asked how much, I remember charging her the $50 as if that was a big deal. But soon thereafter that, you know, after going through the whole experience, she was lovely. That was no problem. But the one thing about brides, it doesn't matter how lovely they are. They want what they want. And when you're done, it's always something else. So I'm like, okay, okay my time is worth a little bit more than $50. Janice, when you first started
0: doing makeup, what did you find most challenging in your first jobs?
1: I guess one of the challenges probably would be, and basically her response is kind of an example, is learning what to charge. Like my very first job, I don't remember what it was, but I do remember I saved the check stub. I remember saving it. I don't remember what the amount was. But I do remember shortly after that, my second job, it was a job where I was working with Reggie Wells. And he called and said, hey, can you come to Chicago to work with me with this big model search thing that he would always do every year? And he told me what it was paying. So I didn't have to say, hey, this is my rate, which was good because at that time, it was very early in my career. And I always found it challenging to know what to charge. Like in my sister's situation, she learned the hard way (laughs) with the wedding, but it was always a challenge, especially if you've never done it before. If you didn't know a lot of people, there were makeup artists out there, but it wasn't as many makeup artists as there is today, but you didn't always know who to ask. And then there would be some makeup artists out there that you did know, but maybe they've never done a wedding or maybe they've never done whatever this job is that you're doing. So that was always a challenge, knowing what to charge. I think that's good advice to makeup artists out there now when they're just starting out, regardless of what they're touching, what they're doing, just start whatever price. Like I said, if you do something for $50 and at the end of the day, you're like, oh my God, I'm worn out. I feel like I just gave everything away. It's okay. It's the first one. Nobody's saying you have to get paid $1,000. You just have to get paid. And if it's $50, $50. But just start somewhere because you will never know what you're worth if you go out there not charging anything. So if you charge $50 and you realize, okay, I'm worth more than that, then charge more than that the next time. Just go from there, but you have to start somewhere.
0: That's an important point.
1: So did you do print and advertising as well? This is Janice. When I started, I didn't know where in makeup I wanted to be. I just knew that this is something new and I'm going to move forward. I was feeling the call, I guess. And I was just trying to do everything. So I started off by testing with photographers. I did commercials. I did weddings. I freelanced at the department stores. I pretty much did it all. I realized that film and TV is where I wanted to be when I was asked to assist another makeup artist on an independent film. And so I went there and I worked with her on that independent film that day And I loved it, I absolutely loved it. And then she would go on to ask me to assist her on some local like public affairs type show. I remember Kwaisi and Fumi had a show called The Bottom Line every Tuesday night. So I would work my tax accounting job, leave work, go home and change and then go over to the television station to work that job with her. And then I think it would be like one Saturday a month, we would go to another television station And do four episodes of another public affairs show. We did that for a little while. And then she went on to department head, The Wire. So both of those public affairs shows became my responsibility. And that right there was kind of like the foundation of my film and TV work. That's amazing. How did you transition to doing it full time? We were pushed out of corporate America. (laughs) And I was pretty much doing the same thing. I was back and forth. I started out doing music videos and things like that. And I didn't know I wanted to do film and TV until I realized I don't want to do music videos anymore. But I was touching everything at the department stores. Like Janice said, I was doing music videos. I was doing television news, like local news in the morning and CNN. And I loved that. And I did television news for a long time while I was still doing film and TV. But I started doing independent films, like Janice was saying. And then that same makeup artist that she worked with on those independent films was here in Atlanta, working on an HBO movie called Boycott. And during that time, she needed some additional help and she called me in to work a few days. So I worked about five days on Boycott. And at that point I knew this is what I'd rather be doing. I'd rather do this. So at that point it was, let's just go for those types of jobs. And that's what I did. I pursued those types of jobs, but I continued to work At the cosmetic counters for Bobby Brown Cosmetics, more specifically, freelancing for them. I continued doing the news and I continued to get film and TV jobs wherever I could. And it just worked out that way. But again, I was still working as an accountant doing all of that. And just being laid off of my job is what forced me out because I didn't really want to give up the paycheck, which I thought was like guaranteed. But it was pretty much forced out when I was laid off my situation was just a little bit different when i first started working on feature film and television i loved it yes this is what i want to do but i thought it was smart for me to continue to stay at my job for a little while longer until i kind of kind of built a little resume then it got to the point where i was turning down a lot of work i really wanted to go to memphis and work with my sister on hustle and flow But I think it was like they were going to only need me there for 10 days, but it wasn't 10 consecutive days. So with my job, I couldn't get the leave for that. So I was like, okay, now I'm giving up a great opportunity that I really want to work on. And this job is getting in my way. So I don't know if it was the next year after that or so, but we just kept having a lot of mergers at my company a lot of mergers and they weren't hiring more people, but it was becoming more work. And I remember coming back from a vacation and we had a meeting and here comes another merger and it was gonna bring on all this change and all this extra stuff. And I said to myself, you know what, this is it. At the end of the year, I'm going to quit. And I knew that leaving at the end of the year, I would forfeit my bonus in February and all that great stuff and I was like, you know what? I'd give up that bonus to just be done with this. And it was probably November, like right before Thanksgiving, and I got a call from a headhunter who was like, "Hey, I want to put you in an interview for a new job. We need some accountants." And I was like, "No, I'm not looking for another job." And they said, "Well, I have information that your department is shutting down." I was like, "Well, no one has told me that." So, I'm not interested in an interview. I hung up with them and I was telling one of my coworkers, and she was like, Yeah, a couple of us got those same calls like about a month ago. But they went into our boss and asked him about it. And he was like, Oh, no, don't listen to them. Nothing like that's happening. So, <laughs> probably by the end of that week, we get messages from my boss's boss saying that someone from HR in New York is coming down to Baltimore. And someone else, I think it was the president of the tax department or something like that, was coming down as well. So I knew at that point it was happening and all this stuff is true. And so I think January 31st of the following year was my last day. And I think February 8th, I was in New York and New York Fashion Week working with Smashbox. On the 9th, I was getting on a plane flying to Atlanta to work on a movie starting on the 10th and the rest is kind of history.
0: But you guys are throwing out some amazing things that you have done. Boycott, hustle and flow, New York Fashion Week. Cause people who wanna be makeup artists, Dream about this stuff, but have no idea how to get from point A to point B or what they need to do.
1: How did Hustle and Flow happen? Let me just point this out first. Part of the problem with makeup artists now, they dream about this stuff, but nobody's doing the work. Because people want to go from dreaming to actually doing it, and it doesn't work like that. There's a process in between where you have to do the work. And the work sometimes could be, like I was stated earlier, I continued working as an accountant full time. I continued working at the television station in the morning doing morning news. That means I was getting up at three o'clock in the morning. I had to be at the news station by four. I was continuing to do that and then going to work at seven or eight o'clock a.m., that's the work that I'm talking about. Even when I was working at the Bobby Brown counter, that's the work I'm talking about. Because even if I'm just doing an anchor's makeup and you're thinking, well, how does that lead me to Fashion Week? Or how does that lead me to a movie? You don't know who that anchor knows. Even if I'm at the counter at Bobby Brown doing a woman's makeup, you don't know who that woman knows. Do you know how many people I've talked to when I've done makeup at those counters? And I tell them what I'm doing and what I'm trying to do. Do you know how many of them say, oh, a good friend of mine is a producer? It's things like that. Doing the work, telling people what it is you want to do, but you keep doing the work until that work gets you the work that you want. And also maintaining relationships with other makeup artists. The woman that Janice talked about that she worked with in Baltimore, like I said, she came to Atlanta. I worked with her. We're good friends with her now. I mean, she's hired me many times for work. She's put my name out there to different people from work. Working with her, I've met other makeup artists. And I actually met a makeup artist who was the head of the makeup department for my Rainey's Black Bottom, who was the one that referred me for Hustle & Flow. Once I started working on Hustle & Flow, I got a call to do Tyler Perry's first movie. And I wasn't going to leave Hustle & Flow so I referred her for Tyler Perry's first movie. So she did his first movie. So it's things like that, maintaining those relationships. You don't know who's going to refer you. It could be the PA on a certain show who liked how you talked to them. And their father can be a producer. And when he's looking for a makeup artist for his next movie, that PA can say, hey, dad, I know somebody that I really liked and she was really nice to me. You just never know. But... To be more specific is about how to get to that point is you have to have the skills. So if you're interested in film and television, then find out what skills are necessary to do that type of work. And that's part of the problem that people are missing. They're not getting the education on exactly what it takes to do makeup for film and TV. And I think that's where people need to start. Get the education first, the work will come. So when the work comes, you're prepared. Just get the education first.
0: Right. And what's important about what you said meant so many things, but one thing that stuck out is the referrals that film and television is very insular and people work from project to project to project, but you never know where that person, that PA or the intern or whomever is going to land in five years, 10 years. And the relationships and the way that you treat everybody is critical. It's not just look at me, I'm that makeup head. You recognize the whole crew and that is how you build a reputation, I imagine.
1: Absolutely. Janice and I get hired a lot. Sometimes when people reach out to me about department heading a show, they'll always ask, is your sister available too? Are you going to hire your sister as well? Because they know how we show up. They know we're respectful. They know that there's no drama in the makeup trailer. They know there's no drama between the makeup department and the hair department. You know, all these things that can happen that have happened over time with different people, they know that's not happening with us. They know when the actors come, we know how to get the actors to do what they need to do when they're in that hair and makeup trailer. So sometimes you get hired for those reasons as well, not just for your skill. That's amazing. How do you get good at
0: special effects makeup? Practice.
1: (laughs) I think for all makeup artists, They should know basic special effects, learning how to do cuts and scars and scratches, you know, some basic effects that you can use, especially like learning how to do a good black eye. If you fell and fell on your knee, learning just how to do bruising, like learning the stages of a bruise. You know, this may sound crazy, it may sound funny, but sometimes when you tell people to do a black eye, they literally have a black eye and that's not a black eye. You have to understand the stages of a bruise. So if someone gets hit in the eye, the eye's not going to be dark purple starting out. It may be a little red. And so what does that red look like on certain skin tones? So just understanding that, the stages of the bruise and how it appears on different skin tones. But just those basics, bruising, scratches, scars, learning how to do that type of thing. But we also have to understand that effects is a specialty also. Like what she's describing is basic stuff, which all makeup artists, especially if you're working in film and TV, need to know. But the specialty part, that is really done by people who specialize in that and that
0: alone. And that's interesting. And it's a good to note if you're interested in makeup, for example, you know, those who are listening, you got to know what the jobs are. But let's talk about being a makeup department head. How do you become one? You alluded to some of the things that you have to be both right brain, left brain. But walk me through what a makeup department head does for a production, for example.
1: As far as how to get there, again, I think it's just as simple as doing the work. Again, you have people who like get into the hair and makeup union, but yet as soon as they get in today, they want to be the department head tomorrow. And that's just not it. It's just not the way to go. And it happens. And it's happening. I think a great department head is someone who can say that they've experienced being in the background. They know what it's like to be in the background. And I think that's great for a department head to understand and to have been there before. Someone who's really touched all areas of a department, to me, I think makes a great department head. Being a department head on a show, like I said, there's an administrative part to all of that as far as your paperwork, as far as maintaining the budgets given to the department head, as far as your ordering supplies and ordering like other things that may be needed. If you see within the script that somebody needs like a bullet hole or somebody needs a tattoo that says a certain thing, it's being able to read that script and being able to break that script down and being able to supply what's needed for that show. So if it means you want to buy some pieces for that bullet hole, especially if it's something that's going to work more than one day, sometimes you can do things just out of your kit, which is fine. But if you know you have to repeat that on a different day, sometimes it's good to just have a prosthetic piece so that continuity remains the same. So you may have to like order pieces and things like that. So it's just someone who can read the script, break it down, and be able to pull from that script and pull what's needed for the job, to get the job done. Being a good department head also requires you to be able to interact with producers, the director, if it's a television show, the directors, because, you know, we have quite a few different directors, being able to communicate well with the AD department, and just other department heads. And sometimes I feel like the best department heads are people who are experienced, people who have been in the business for a while because they know ways of getting what they want and giving producers and directors what they want as well. And sometimes that's not an easy thing to do when you're not experienced and you don't know your way around those scenarios. But I do believe just training yourself and just preparing yourself makes you a great department head. The department head will be responsible for the looks of the actors, especially if it's a television show. Sometimes that first director will have a lot to say about those characters and how they should look. And so it's working with that director on creating those looks, taking his ideas and then your own ideas and making sure that he's happy with what you come up with. So it's just working alongside also the costume designer, working with the hair department head coming up with those looks and creating those looks. The makeup department head is also responsible for pretty much assigning certain tasks to their crew. The department head may say, well, you know, instead of me doing petty cash, then I'll have my key do the petty cash. Like, I'll make the purchases and the key can reconcile all that. You know, they're responsible for continuity and assigning someone to do continuity and determining how best to do that. There's so many ways to do that now with different things like sync on set and just there are different ways of being able to keep up with continuity. And so just kind of deciding what's best for the department and how they want to do that. Also, a good department head is someone who's a good listener, someone who can, as they say, read the room. When you see actors on the trailer, and they're getting their makeup done. And sometimes somebody doesn't really look like they're particularly happy with what's happening to them. You know, a good department head will be able to maybe pull that actor to the side, maybe when they see them on set, or somehow get their attention and just kind of find out what they're going through, what's wrong, you know, if they need something to be changed. And just being able to do it in a way where it's professional. You're not necessarily hurting somebody's feelings, but just being able to kind of assess those types of situations as well. I think a good department head is also a great leader and someone who works well with people, know how to lead other people, and just know how to get people together to work together. And I can just say that for my sister and I, how we got to the department head role is, she kind of mentioned it earlier, is like, we've experienced all other areas of the department. And we kind of did it in order. Most of the time you start off, you're working with the background actors. You hear people refer to it as a day player. And then it just led us to the other positions from here and there. And even after working as department heads, we still work as day players or working in the background, working as a third or working as a key. We still will work any position even after being department head. Right, so you're not
0: caught up with the title.
1: No, not at all. Start
0: Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. A lot of talk about diversity, being more diverse in film and television, especially when it comes to hair and makeup and costume. Are there hurdles to getting into the union?
1: I think it depends on which union you're trying to get into. I know for Local 798, which is the union that we're in, which is East Coast, I've heard people say, you know, I've had all my days or whatever, but they still didn't let me in. I'm not really certain as to why that is. As to why that is, because there's been situations where local seven ninety-eight has extended an offer for membership to people who did not have the 180 days. Like they lowered it so if you can get 30 days on a union project, we'll let you in and it's for less money. You know what I mean? So there were times when people were let in for less where they didn't have to do nearly all of the work. So I'm not sure as to why they didn't get in. But I think what Janice was about to say was more so about Local 706 and that whole process. Yeah, because I watched the, I don't know if it was Television or Film Academy, did a session with Defon Franklin, who was hosting it. Yeah, I watched it too. And what they were saying, it all sounded to me more so like it was union related with these diversity issues and having problems getting into the union. I've heard members of 706 say that it's hard for people to get in in 706, but this was years ago when I heard them saying that. And let me just quickly say this so that people who are listening are clear. There's one union, IOTC, but there are several locals. so when it comes to representing hair and makeup, there's 706, which represents Los Angeles County, And then there is 798, which represents the East Coast and the Southeast. But I've heard that there were some people who said it was hard to get in. Now, I don't know what made it hard for some people, but I can say if you do what's required to get in and if you have what's needed to get in, then there should not be a problem with getting in. Now, if there is some kind of problem, then it's something else outside of not having what you need. I know for Local 706 in Los Angeles, their union is run by something called Contract Services. So once you have all of your information together, you present that to Contract Services and not necessarily Local 706. So it has to go through Contract Services. Contract Services is the one that will say whether or not you qualify for membership. The Contract Services tells the local there whether or not you qualify for membership. Whereas on the East Coast with 798, our local is run by members. So when you present yourself to 798, we have a membership committee that reviews your information and then they decide from there, strictly from the stuff that you've presented and from you having an interview with them. Before COVID, you would have to fly to New York and have your interview. Now, I think everything's done via Zoom. So, you have your interview and you present your information and you go from there. Most people who've done that, from my understanding, they've had their 180 days within three years and they provide photos and your pay stubs and they've had their interview. I don't know too many people who haven't gotten in that way. Absolutely. But I will say, listening to that session, getting into the union is one thing, getting into the business. And when you say the business, You either mean getting into the makeup and hair business or getting into the makeup and hair business for TV and film. There are some differences between those two things. And we know that you have to be in a union to do feature film and television. We're just saying, do what's required. You should not have an issue. I feel like some of those issues were other things, but I do know the one issue that stands in the way, whether you're in the union or not, for people who are in the union, people who are of color, there are some issues with having enough Black talent available to work with Black actors. Now, I will say here in Atlanta, there's enough talent. And I honestly believe there was always enough talent. And when I say talent, I mean hair and makeup talent, but the jobs were not always given to that talent. And that part that they spoke about on that seminar is an issue.
0: The way they were talking about getting on the roster or whatever the word they use, but basically being on a list that people are referring to. And if you're not on the list, you're not even considered. So that goes back to relationships.
1: That's it. Because I think they were mentioning something about being on the showrunners list. And the thing about that is when you've worked with a showrunner and they like you, they're going to call you back. Why try something new? If you have somebody that you like working with and things are working well, reach out to that person. And so sometimes it's not necessarily a list. It's just one or two people that they like using. And if you maintain those relationships, yes, you will get called. And there have been some white artists who work with the same producers all the time. But then there are some Black artists as well who work with the same producers all the time. And those producers don't care if it's a white actor, Black actor, or whatever. They're hiring the same person. But there are times when there are shows that happen where all of the actors are Black, but yet they want to hire an all-white crew. And some of these people don't have a clue as to what to do with these Black men's hair. They're sending them to barbershops. And sometimes producers don't get that these Black men need a haircut just about every day or every other day. And even with some of the women, I've heard of situations where, like, these white makeup department heads are sending these Black actresses to the mall so that they can get their foundation matched. But yet they'll hire a white makeup artist as department head, and she's got a whole white crew. But yet you have Black talent sitting in Atlanta waiting to be hired.
0: Yeah, that's ridiculous. And I believe it because I was on that seminar too. And just understanding the whole point of sending somebody supercut or something like that is just frightening. And it impacts people's performance at the end of the day. Because if they're not feeling good about themselves in the role, they can only fake it but so much.
1: But you know what, Corinne? This may be a different conversation. I just need Black actors to stand up for themselves. I need Black actors to open their mouths. I don't care if you're just starting out in the industry or if you've been in the industry 25, 30 years. I need them to start speaking up. I agree with you. And it goes back to, like she was talking about, a good department head. A good department head has to know what those actors need. A good producer also has to know, who do we have as our acting talent? I need to be able to put the best person in place for these people. My sister and I have been on shows where white producers, the show was not necessarily what you would call a Black show, but it had a lot of Black talent. And those white producers said, we're only hiring Black makeup artists and Black hairstylists. We need more producers like that, who know and they realize that this black hair needs special attention and it needs to be someone that can do it. Now, don't get me wrong. If you are a white hairstylist that can do black hair, it's nothing wrong with you being hired. And I say this all the time. Last year, we were on a panel talking about diversity. After that panel, I was so inspired, so fired up that we had a series of shows about diversity on our podcast. And it went from hair and makeup to the theater, to cameramen, to publicists, Black talent working in this industry and their experiences, how they've been treated, the lack of work because they were Black, that kind of thing. It just goes to show you that producers, doesn't matter what color they are, have to know what's needed for their talent. And they need to place the right people in place for them. I tell people all the time that both my sister and I have been blessed to be on all kinds of shows, doing all kinds of races of people. And it doesn't matter. We can do it as makeup artists. It's about knowing how to match that skin and knowing how to work with that skin. All makeup artists should know how to do it. I'm not saying that it's not challenging, but the one key thing that I notice is that a lot of white artists don't stock their kits to do any more than white talent. You don't see a range of color in their kits for Black talent. And you can't say the products aren't available. And now you can't say that the products aren't available. Whereas in my kit, I have a range for everybody because I don't know who I'm going to work with on a given job. When I first started out in makeup, a lot of my first jobs were with white talent. When I went to Chicago to work with Reggie on that model thing, it was all white models. A lot of my first jobs were white talent. I had to go out and build my kit to add all the Black colors in. So when I worked on movies, I remember on the notebook years ago, working in the background. I think I was probably one of the only Black makeup artists there. And when we had a break, We all were just looking at planning each other's makeup, looking at what products each person had. And when I looked in some of those white girls' kit, they had nothing for Black people. Wow. Because I remember, even on Big Fish, every time on those shows, when one or two Black women showed up, guess who had to do them? Exactly. They all got sent to me or to us. And that's what happens. And I think that's still true today. I remember working on Step Up 2 in Baltimore, the movie. And the white department had three women coming in to be at this party. And I was working in the background. I'm headed to set. She comes running down the street trying to find me. She did one of the girls. Now she's all up in the air because she needs me to go back to the trailer and fix the girl that she did. And so I go back. The girl had all of this discoloration and all this stuff going on. Her shade didn't go beyond Halle Berry. And she put it on this brown skin girl and stuff just didn't look right. So I had to go in and fix that. And while I was there, the next girl came in and I had to do the next girl. So they get the jobs, sometimes can't do the work, and then we get called to fix it.
0: This is such a loaded topic.
1: Yeah, it's very loaded. And you know what? It's been happening forever. Honestly, still happening today. I will say because of all this diversity talk, a lot of Black makeup artists have been called into jobs to do the Black people. Only the Black people. For the most part, only the Black people. That's still happening. I do think that some white department heads feel like they are helping by calling the Black people in to do the Black talent. Okay. But like we spoke on several panels before, we want our resumes to speak for themselves. We don't want you to know that we're Black. Just look at my resume. Look at the work that I've done. Hire me because you like that. Right. And I think that
0: all of this is just so critically important. I mean, yes, it is great to have Black talent hired for the Black actors, but be clear that you're not doing us a favor. That's not inclusion. No. That's a band-aid. There's a difference. And so as we look at what's happened in the last year, there have been like some baby steps here and there, but there's also been a lot of performative talk. All it does is indicate that you got to keep your foot on the gas. It's not like, oh, we can ease up. It's gotten so much better. No, this is an ongoing thing that needs attention and needs voices. As you said, the actors and actresses have to speak up and all of us have to use our voices to make sure that this shifts. Because for me, and I'm just a viewer, I watch a TV movie any kind of performance. And if somebody's hair or makeup is wrong, I'm just lost. All I can do is stare at it. The whole time, I don't want to hear the dialog like, what is going on? It's very distracting. Yeah, it really is. I want to shift the conversation a little bit. Let's talk about your makeup line. What made you start Illusions?
1: Well, one of the things that inspired me, I'll start with that. Years ago, We used to go to the hair salon and I saw this black woman come in and she was selling cosmetics to the hair salon owner. And I was like, wow, you know, I've always loved makeup and always interested in that kind of thing. And I thought it was so nice or great to see this black woman come in selling her own cosmetic. I thought that was such a great thing. When my sister and I were selling women's accessories, I wrote a business plan. I wanted to open an accessories boutique and I wanted to have my own cosmetics line. Little did I know that years later, I would meet this same woman at my church. She was a member of my church and we became really close. She herself owned a clothing boutique and I remember going there one day to talk to her and I sat down and spoke to her about just her business in general and how she got started. And actually she was the one who told me about because at this at that time in the state of Maryland you had to have a license to do makeup and I didn't even know that. So she was the one who told me about that and at first I kept pushing it off and I was like, you know what, I really just want to do this business plan for my boutique. I really don't want to go get a makeup license. But then I decided, well, you know what? Let me go ahead and do the right thing. And so when I went to school, that's when I started really getting interested in the makeup side as a career. But going back to the brand I kept researching and researching and just kind of doing my homework. And that's pretty much what inspired me to do the line, the love for it, and then seeing that, oh, it's possible. This is something that I could do. And that's kind of how it started. But also as makeup artists, you know, at this time we're working, of course, but then also doing film and TV. And at the time doing film and TV, we wanted to see more options for women of color. Yeah, because I think at that time there was what, like Fashion Fair? Lori Roberts, maybe? Yeah. And then Interface came along. hmm Black Oval And maybe Iman at that time. Yeah. So we wanted to just be another option, not saying, oh, we're the best product out or anything like that. We just wanted to have more options. And that's pretty much how it got started. It's been out for like 14 years or so.
0: What have you learned about having a makeup line? And then talk to me a little bit about adding new products and manufacturing, because those are new skills too that you have to learn.
1: Okay. So for us, I think part of what we've learned, one, is it takes patience. Growth doesn't happen overnight. It takes getting in there, doing the work, learning what's needed and what's not, learning who your target market is. In serving that target market, when we first started with the line, things were done a lot differently. You could actually send out things in the mail, (laughs) email and all that was fairly new. So you could email like newsletters and things like that. Blogs were fairly new. So, you know, that was a route that we took. And then now social media is the big push. So it's like learning how to pivot and to change with the times and learning how to adjust and how to work the business now in this new age. And as far as adding new products and things, we like to follow the trend because we know people will buy trend. But for us also being a makeup artist, we also like to have products that we like to use as well. And especially being in film and TV, you could do a period project or something like that. And that period project doesn't necessarily always mean, oh, 1950s, 1940s, but it could be 1980s. So we like to kind of like have the color range for those periods, especially if you're doing like 30s to 60s. We want to have a collection of red lipsticks that represent those time periods. We want to have like the blue eyeshadows that you might see in the 70s or things like that. So, you know, do products that we as makeup artists in film and TV can use as well, you know, because that's a target market of ours as well. But now we're in a transitional stage where We are trying to do something different. We're trying to streamline it a little bit more so that we don't have as many products. You know, there were times when we had like for one particular skew, like the liquid lipsticks, we may have had over 13 different shades. We want to like scale down from that now and just have our collections, maybe not have more than about five or six in a collection. So we're in that transitional stage right now where we're kind of like regrouping, taking a look at what we did in the past and how we need to transition for the future. How would people be able to get your product? Right now you can go online to illusionsbeauty.com. At one time we were selling in our beauty studio, but we stopped that during COVID. (laughs) Let's
0: talk a little bit about COVID and its impact on your work. How has it changed everything for you guys or has it?
1: Yeah, it has. Like she said, when COVID first happened, We weren't going into our studio. And then eventually we were like, you know what? This makes no sense for us to be paying a rent there and all this. So we just kind of shut it down. And in film and television, people have to realize and know when we don't go to work, we don't get paid. That right there is one of the things, you know, we were just out of work. Of course, there was unemployment, but think about some of the people who work in film and television and they weren't working before COVID. Then when COVID came, Some of them weren't even able to collect unemployment. So COVID kind of just shut us all down altogether. Then going back to work, it was a little different. (laughs) It was a little scary. It was very scary. There were certain protocols put in place through our union and through some of the studios. There was a lot of things that we had to do differently. First, I will say, as a makeup artist, we should be doing things like cleaning our implements. Cleaning our hands, you know, after we do makeup in between clients, cleaning our stations in between clients. So, all of the cleaning that we were doing before was like on 10 after COVID when we went back to work. It was the cleaning of the seats, the disposable smocks, the disposable capes for the talent. It was the mask, the shields. Like every time you're in an actor space, you had to have a shield on as well. So when you're doing the makeup in the trailer, and then when you go to set, you have to touch them up. You have to have that shield on. If you're just sitting around, you could take the shield off. But if you're in the actor's face, the shield had to be on. It was just so many things. To be honest with you, by the time you got home, you were drained, not just from the long 14-hour day, but just from all of the things that you had to do because of COVID. And then having a KN95 mask on for like 14 hours a day. And the only time you took it off was at lunch. Or if you needed a mask break, you could go outside. It was like 20 feet away from the stage doors. But who has time for that? As soon as a makeup or hair person steps outside of the door to go take a mask break, trust and believe somebody's calling them back in to do a touch up or something. So you pretty much stayed in that mask until lunchtime. And it's hard breathing in those things. And like she said, by the time you got home, it was draining just from all of that. And then having to be tested three times a week. And just saying all of that about working on film and TV, even with our beauty studio, part of the reason why we shut that down was because just the thought of having somebody come off the street or make an appointment with you to come in and you don't know that person. And it's like, I'm being tested on my job three times a week. But even before that, I wasn't being tested. And I don't know these people. I don't know if they're being tested. You know, I can wear my mask. I can wear my shield. But in my mind, I didn't feel protected enough. So it was like, I can't do this. (laughs) I just can't work with the general public right now. And so that was like one of our main reasons for just shutting it all down.
0: Do you think that you may, in the future, bring back your studio in a different form?
1: Absolutely because we loved it. So yeah, absolutely.
0: What is the unsung skill you need to make it as a makeup artist?
1: Knowing how to do makeup for all skin tones. Yeah. And for doing makeup for film and TV, knowing how to do character makeup. And when I say character makeup, I just mean you have to have a great understanding that when you watch a TV show or a movie, every person up there is playing a character but somebody may be playing an attorney somebody may be playing as the president or a senator or a secret servicemen or something like that you have to know the look for a secret serviceman so you mean you can't put glitter eyeshadow on them right <laughs> there you go and you have to know that some people can't have facial hair meaning for the guys we like with police officers some police officers you're not going to see one with a full beard absolutely but you know in atlanta a police officer versus a police officer somewhere here in Georgia that's like a small town, that may be two different looks. So you have to know that, you have to do your research. So always researching and understanding the territory where you are. Somebody in New York City is not gonna look like somebody in Kansas City. You have to know that and then know the differences.
0: That's great advice and great insight. Beauty Talk,
1: what made you start it
0: and how long have you been
1: doing it? Janice and her bright ideas. Yeah. Another one of my bright ideas. You know, I used to remember MySpace days. I used to hang out on MySpace and there's a local radio personality that's in the Baltimore, Washington, D.C. area. And she kept talking about she was doing a radio show on blog talk radio. And I went over and I listened and then I saw someone else on MySpace talking about blog talk radio. So I was like, what is this blog talk radio? And so then when I went out to see what it was and I was saying to my sister, "You know what? This would be a great idea for us to get on and just do a show and we talk beauty, you know, just simple stuff, you know, starting out or whatever." And we used to even call some of our friends and say, "Hey, call in and ask a question or give a comment or something." And they did, and next thing you know, other people that we didn't even know was listening. And next thing you know, we had this small following and then it just went on for such a long time. And now we've been doing it for 13 years. Wow. And what do you like most about doing it now? It's like when you interview people and you're thinking, oh, okay, this interview is going to inspire our listeners and all that. And it ends up inspiring you and you know, you're sitting there interviewing the person, but you're learning so much. Sometimes when I do the show, I'm sitting there with pen and paper, like asking questions, but taking notes along the way. And it's something that we do to give back to the industry, but, Like she was saying, we wind up getting so much out of it just for ourselves as well. Whether we have a guest or whether she and I get on and we talk about a topic, we get so much out of it just for ourselves as well. I think that's one of the things that I love about it the most. Now let's move on to our fast track questions.
0: What was the first beauty product each of you purchased?
1: Do you remember? Clear lip gloss. Gloss. Both of you. <laughs> <laughs> Strawberry flavored. It's probably sixth or seventh grade. <laughs> wow. That's all we could wear. What was the last beauty product you tried? Glue liner. Yes. Like those liner pens. It's like black. You put it on like it's eyeliner and then you just stick your lash on it and you're done. And actually, I'm wearing it now. Okay. <laughs> it's so simple and easy.
0: I probably still can't do it though. <laughs> me and lashes we just don't get along <laughs> what's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone
1: oh the beauty advice i live by is moisturize 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 and for me i would say less is best what do you leave alone we tend to call it the atlanta brown it's like when people draw on those really 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 thick brown. yeah uh, leave that alone yeah, I leave that alone. And then I also leave because some people are still doing it, but I don't do that heavy liner around the lip with the light frosted shade of lipstick in the middle. What's the beauty trend you tried when you were
0: younger that makes you laugh? Blue
1: mascara. The blue mascara. I laugh at it today because I remember in high school, I remember clearly it was social studies class, and there's this girl. Who came in and when she saw me with the blue mascara on, she started laughing. And I'm laughing because I think about it now because maybe about a month later, guess who was wearing blue mascara? Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> who was your Black Beauty icon growing up and who deserves that status now? Jane Kennedy back in the day. This is the second time Jane Kennedy's come up on the show. She's
1: up there, she's gonna rep. I love it. Oh, yeah. She was everything back then. Who would you say is a BDI kind now? Now there's no one in particular that I think about. That's okay. Yeah, I don't have one right now. If someone wanted to follow in your footsteps, what would you tell them? Ooh, study your craft. Absolutely. You'll get to the point of figuring out the steps of how to get to where we are. But just study your craft. And something I always, always say when we're doing our show, and we're talking to makeup artists, is do the work. And like I said, that makeup work doesn't even have to be in film and TV. It could just be makeup work, period. And just always talking about what you want to do and where you want to be in life and it will come. But do the work and study your craft. I would have to agree, study your craft for sure. Because when you know what you're supposed to know, no one can deny that. And so like how we were talking about the diversity and hiring black talent, one thing for sure is when the black talent gets hired, they need to know what they're supposed to know.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I cannot thank you enough for coming on the show, for giving listeners such a fount of information. It was like you opened the vault and gave information. If you want to be a makeup artist, like this is the show. <laughs> right. You need to understand all <laughs> of the intricacies of the business. And it boils down to studying a craft. So you have no excuses. That's right. Because when opportunity comes, you have to be ready.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Corinne. That's our show for
0: today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top and the most important
1: step is the first one. So start right here.